everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Kerry O'Connor Kolaje, CEO of Authentics, the global leader in automated identity intelligence and cyber fraud prevention. Kerry leads a team charged with enabling companies to onboard faster, prevent fraud, meet compliance mandates, and establish trust with their customers. Prior to Authentics, Kerry was the global chief product officer at City FinTech and vice president of global consumer products at PayPal. In these roles, she was responsible for the global product vision in service to hundreds of millions of consumers around the world. Throughout her career, Kerry has been known as an innovator, disruptor, and operator who can drive from startup to scale-up. In today's episode, we dive into Kerry's early career, skills that she picked up over her time at PayPal and City that make her a better leader, and the world of identity literacy. We end with a rapid-fire round of questions. Hope you enjoy the show. So hi, Kerry, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, how are you doing and where are you joining us from? Well, thanks for having me. I'm great, thank you. And I'm joining from just outside of Manhattan in Montclair, New Jersey. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And could you maybe, could you maybe <laughs> start off by introducing yourself to our listeners, uh, providing a little bit of an overview of your career prior to joining Authentics? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Carrie O'Connor Kolaje, the CEO of Authentics. I self-describe myself as a uh, explorer and entrepreneur. So over the last two decades plus, I've been really working at the cross-section of payments and financial services and technology and disruption. And I spent about 13 years at PayPal during a hyper-growth stage where I like to say I, I grew up had two kids at the same time, and then about four years at Citibank, where I was responsible as a chief product officer for disrupting the bank from within. And a little bit of my journey of how I got to Authentics is you can imagine in the world of payments and financial services, and particularly with financial crime, it's so important that you understand who's at any end of a transaction, whether it's a B2B or it's a B2C or B2B2C, And I became really fascinated with this idea of how do you verify that someone is who that they say they are. And prior to the pandemic, interestingly enough, while the world was moving in a pace where we were becoming more and more digitally connected, just in the last year as a society, identity and accreditation of who you are and what you claim you have has really emerged at the center of a safer and more trustworthy digital ecosystem. And so I have found myself in a space that not only I've been passionate about for over a decade, but one in which is incredibly paramount that we solve as a society. There's so much I want to get into with that. And maybe let's start with your time at PayPal. Uh, So you mentioned you spent over a decade there. You saw the company go through an intense period of growth and spin off from eBay. What was that experience like? And what were some of the major takeaways you have um, from that as a leader in the fintech industry? You know, it's, I think with any aspects of your life, when you're in it, you don't realize the lessons that you're learning along the way. And when I look back at those 13 years, there are definitely some of the greatest leadership lessons of my life. And I'll share with you a few, and we can double click on any of them that you may find a little bit interesting. But one of the ones I learned very early on, I was quite junior and the COO at the time of eBay, and eBay had just purchased PayPal, was a gentleman by the name of Minard Webb. And he went on to do incredible other things, I think, including starting live ops and some other things. But I had the good fortune of having dinner with him one night. And I asked him, like, what was the one thing that guided you throughout your whole life? And he said, solve the most difficult problems that no one else wants to. And and it wasn't necessarily about creating job security for yourself. It was 
it's human nature to sometimes go after the easiest issues versus the most difficult ones that we tend to procrastinate around. Because, but as leaders of the next generation, you really have to be willing to embrace the uncertainty and the complexity of the problems that are in front of you. Another big lesson that I learned was, it's going to sound crazy, but follow the money. So understand um, how your businesses are making money, regardless of what level you are at the organization. Sometimes it's surprising to people that as you become more and more senior, you don't have all the answers. And sometimes, you know, the most critical things need to be solved when you do follow the money. I learned from a mentor of mine who was actually the CIO of eBay PayPal at one point. And he said, you know, if you if you understand the accounting rules within the boundaries of the law and you understand how the company makes money, you can create a lot more flexibility in order for you to do more and to find ways in where you create massive operational leverage. And so during a period of time there, I was managing, I was a 400, 500 million dollar budgets at the time. And I found that there was so much more that I could deliver on behalf of the organization without asking for more money. So it was a really simple lesson, but an important one. And one of the last ones, I mean, 13 years, you learn a tremendous amount, but which is a little bit contrary to what people say, which is to work yourself out of a job, you know, design an organization that as if you were leaving. And I'll share a very personal story about that, but far too often, we look at the work that we have to do on a day-to-day basis and the tasks that are in front of us. And we don't necessarily take a step back and ask yourself, like, as a leader, how do I move this forward? And how do I create spaces for myself to take on more issues and more work and different work while delegating to others? And I, too often, many of us walk around really concerned about job security. And it's really unfortunate because there's so many things for us to solve as a society together. And if you get comfortable letting go, you actually create spaces to take on more, more interesting things. And my very personal story was I was um, eight months pregnant working at PayPal. And I was probably working 12, 13 hours a day, which by the way, was probably four hours less than what I was working before I actually got pregnant. And the team was really you know, busting their butt and we were delivering and the KPIs were being met. And I was, you know, I was just like all in it and I was getting ready to go on maternity leave. And I remember I had to have my annual performance before I left because my son was born in December and it was the worst performance rating I had ever gotten. And it wasn't that was bad. It was average. And I wasn't used to being average. And I was, I was devastated for so many reasons. And what I learned from that, having talked to my manager and my mentor was this whole importance of role modeling and leading smartly and not necessarily leading by working too much. And as hard of a lesson it was, it really influenced, you know, my day-to-day decisions moving forward. And when I left to go on maternity leave, and then when I left to go on two sabbaticals after that, I designed my organization so that when I came back, I could do something different. And so whenever I go into a situation now, I think really hard about, Am I giving people opportunities, you know, to take on more, to learn more? Or am I feeding into the ambitions that others have around me? And how do I do less to be more, frankly? And that that was a lesson on leadership that I held very, very true to my heart. And there's, I think it was Harvard Business Review who wrote, there was a quote that says that leadership's about making others better in your presence and making sure that the results last in your absence. And I just don't think that could be any more true for each of us. 
those are such great lessons. <laughs> I don't know which one to dive into, but I think I'm going to pick the first one. Sure. Uh, which was finding a problem that is challenging that nobody else wants to solve. And you've devoted so much of your time to this authentication problem. I'm just curious why that called to you the most. Well, at first, you know, what called to me was really this notion of democratizing access to money. That, you know, we live in a world where there's an abundance of money and an abundance of wealth. And we live in a world where there's staggering levels of poverty and people in need. And when you look at it, from an economic perspective, it's a supply chain issue that is just broken. There's a lot of people who want to help and there's a lot of people who need help and people have money, but they have a hard time accessing their money. And so this whole democratization of money and access to money was really, really fascinating to me. And then through the course of that, I came to realize that you can't move money without actually verifying that the person who needs the money or should access the money or is sending the money is actually the right person or business or entity. And so That coupled with, I actually had a couple of experiences very early on in my career where people misrepresented themselves. And, you know, someone who likes to trust and believes that there's a bigger purpose uh, for all of us to be here, it really caused me to question my own kind of self-intentions and my self-beliefs. And I started to think, how do you use technology in order to reassure people that the things that they think are correct actually are correct. You know, how do you use technology to combat some of the, well, let me take a step back. When I was brought up, you never talked to strangers. You never got in cars with strangers. And now we live in a world where you get in cars with strangers all the time with Ubers and you rent strangers' homes. And technology has afforded us the mechanism to do that and to do that safely. And so this, you know, this, this idea of verification became really, really core to who I am and, and what problem I wanted to solve. And I think as part of my payments journey, you know, one of the challenges that we've all faced globally is this idea of financial literacy. And a lot of people don't understand what it means to manage their finances or choices that they make one day will have long lasting implications and ramifications. And, and so as I Fast forward on that, I think about identity literacy and I think about the responsibility that must be fostered by businesses and consumers to really fight fraud together. And it takes about us unifying and educating each other. And I do believe in the this global landscape that we're in right now. What does identity mean? Like, what is your identity? What is my identity? It's so much more than just a government issued ID. It's so much more than just your social security number or your mobile phone number. And so It's really about this idea of every time you get online or every time you do something offline that has some sort of digital imprint, you're leaving these breadcrumbs about yourself and whether you're shopping or you're working or you're sending money. And that is something that I don't think we all think about the implications of that has on our lives if we don't do it thoughtfully, if we don't do it safely. I'll share with you a stat actually. So, you know, fraud is something that just like payments. So just like payments, like it doesn't have borders, right? I mean, we live in a borderless existence. And when you send money, you send them across the street, you can send money across the world. Fraud's the same way. And fraud is very global. It's very organized. And it's a very interconnected adversary. And in last year alone, there was $750 billion that was lost because of fraud. I mean, that's up 40 plus percent from 2019. And A third of customers, which means most likely you or I have experienced identity fraud. And this is something that as we look to the future, we have to bring together the business community and the next generation of business leaders to help consumers become more educated on it. And so 
bit of a long-winded answer to your question, but you know, what started out is financial literacy has moved into identity literacy for me and feeling like I've thought about the problem enough and I understand the role that technology can play to solve it, that it's my responsibility in order to help pave the path for others that follow. Really like the term identity literacy. I haven't heard that before. What does a world with high identity literacy look like to you? That each of us understand that the choices that we make and the information that we leave, those breadcrumbs, or I call them digital dust sometimes, actually can be assembled in different ways by people with bad intent. And so that the choices that we make day to day, the decisions that we make to share our information become conscious ones versus ones that are just based on a little bit of being naive, in my view. And to take it one step further, where do I see the world in five, six, seven years from now? I do hope we live in a world where each of us as consumers you know, can control what information we give access to whom and that we can revoke that. And so this notion of, of a self-sovereign identity, I know that many people think it's a big ambition. I don't think it's that far away. We need it. The technology exists. There's players that are entering into the ecosystem. I and mean, Apple's announcement last week is a great example of whether it's big tech or it's government or it's you know these small startups. There's a p- real problem there that needs to get solved. And so my my hope and my ambition is that each of us as consumers and each of us as individuals and citizens take a second moment to think about what am I sharing and what are the implications of what I'm sharing. Amazing answer. I want to keep diving into this, but I also want to cover some of the other topics. So I think we'll come back to this yeah, one. Yeah, no problem. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was your time at City, and you yeah. were there after PayPal and mm-hmm. part of the fintech partnerships team. Anything that you're particularly proud of, or any partnerships that you're particularly proud of that came out of that? Ooh, so when I was going to City, um, many of my colleagues and peers at PayPal just like big question mark. Why are you doing this? It, but it was a very conscious decision, and it was probably one of the better decisions that I've made. And And the decision wasn't because I wanted to have a long tenure at City, to be candid with you. It was about, I felt there were a set of lessons that I needed to learn and I needed to become more of a student on the broader financial services ecosystem and not just in payments where PayPal had become very, very disruptive. And so there's a lot that I'm proud of. I mean, there's a lot that I'm proud of because much of what we created and started still exists today. And I think that that is probably the biggest indicator of someone's success is that it does live on beyond you, as I stated earlier. And one of the, you talk about partnerships, one of the things with City, I learned a lot about patience and persistence, particularly as you're trying to truly move a Titanic. And I'm proud of a lot of partnerships that we established, but I think what I'm most proud of is how we moved from becoming a bank and an entity that didn't do any partnerships or didn't feel the need to do partnerships to one that truly embraced the importance of fintech and big banks and that opened the aperture for not just how do you partner with a fintech disruptor, how do you partner with the big cloud providers? How do you partner with a lot of other organizations that would be seemingly potentially competitors? And before my time, if we wanted to do a partnership with a fintech disruptor, so say, Acorns or say, you know, somebody else, even Mixpanel, even if I want to bring Mixpanel in in order to do product analytics, for those of you who are product gurus, it would have taken nine months. And we put a process in place that created boundaries that were safe and protected 
that allowed us to sign an NDA in two days and have a POC in four weeks. And it really was the first step in opening up the bank's eyes to the possibility of partnership safely. And just because it's a small startup and it's disruptive doesn't mean they're irresponsible and doesn't mean they don't have the right security protocols and information, you know, security protocols in place in order to make them a good partner. And so, you know, for me, that was, it was a proud moment, but I will, I will tell you one story that, you know, was a bit disappointing for me is very early on. I think I was about four weeks, five weeks into the role and Acorns, if you're familiar with Acorns, was doing a strategic round. They weren't worth $2 billion at the time. Like they were looking for pretty significantly smaller sums of money. And I remember walking out of the meeting and telling my CEO at the time, we should invest or we should buy them because they had really solved for how do you educate, invest, and build really delightful experiences around a space that has been very intimidating for most throughout their lives. And you know, just great leadership, great talent. We didn't do either of that. Clearly, my influence did not extend where it needed to be at the time. And now you see Acorns is about $2 billion. You know, so it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience there. And I look back, and when I started, all you could do on the mobile app for City was to look at your bank account. And when I left, and, and it was not just me, it was a collection of us there, you, know, you could do any banking, self-directed trading, a lot of the fintech tactics of round up the chain, save money, save for goals, those types of things. And, you know, really, really taught me about the importance of patience because what I wanted to do within the first four weeks there, I knew what it was we had to do, but it took us four years to get it done. And I think that's a great example of far too often we're so impatient about what it is that we want to see happen that we don't realize that it's actually within the patients that we get to a better place and we get to a place that is actually sustainable. And then after City, uh, you went to Authentics. You were president and CEO for a year and a half and then appointed, sorry, president and COO for a year and a half and then appointed yeah. to CEO in October of 2020. Curious in what ways your current role is different from your uh, previous role at Authentics. If there's any major learnings from your past eight, nine months as CEO. I'll group it all together as far as learnings over the last two and a half years. But yeah, look, the role of a CEO is inherently different to any other role. The sense of responsibility and accountability that not only you're obligated to, but that you have a personal sense of taking care of a bigger group of individuals who are following in your status, you know, it can be daunting, but it's also very exciting. And I will say the big difference for me when I joined as COO, and particularly because I was the first American to join a all-Israeli organization that was based out of Hoda Sharon, just outside of Tel Aviv in Israel. And there's, you know, one could argue that there was a lot of reasons of why it wasn't going to work or why it may not have been successful. So we were very, very thoughtful about my onboarding. And I actually came in not wanting anybody to report to me. I felt like it was really important that while I had the title, that people didn't see me as someone who was looking to take on a lot very quickly in order to establish a power base and to drive change out of the gate. I wanted them to see me as someone who wanted to learn and who understood that you have to 
respect the past and you have to honor the present in order to change the future, right? And that there were 12 years prior to me joining where this company had tremendous success. And there were those individuals who started day one that were still there. And the worst thing that I could have done was come in and think I had all the answers because no one person does and I didn't. And so, you know, coming in and not having anybody reporting to me and then coming in and being given the space to say, function by function, how do I master the domain to understand it enough so when I am able to ascend to that next level that I am, I can lead through experience and not lead just through direction. And so that was, I think all of that lended itself to be in a position that in October of last year, we made the switch um, and the CEO and founder became the chairman. The last year, as you can imagine, I think as for any leader, it has been incredibly difficult. And we talk a lot about working remote and a lot about how society has shifted in this. We're embracing this hybrid working environment, although you being in those who are in New York, you know there's a lot of pressure to get people back in the offices. I've actually, prior to being at Authentics, I worked remotely for 13 years. And so what it takes to be successful how difficult it can be, how isolating it could be, and the importance of managing your own emotions in times of feeling isolated and the uncertainty to understanding what the reality is versus the reality you create in your head sometimes, which may say crazy, was actually really, really important lessons for me over the last 10, 12 years. And so I know I wouldn't have been ready to do what I did over the last year if I hadn't had those experiences. And so I think that's one of the biggest, biggest lessons for me through this. And I'll say the last one is this whole importance of making, understanding the long view of where you want to go and balancing the architectural decisions you make within your technology and within your product to achieve the future while making the short-term decisions for the products you need to survive and to generate revenue. I think far too often, particularly in startups, you're rewarded by getting to market really quickly. Clearly, because if you get to market quickly, you can drive revenue and income, which allows you to be sustainable for you know future growth. But if you really, really believe in what you're doing and you have a vision and you have a goal of where you want to go, it actually behooves you to take a moment to make the right decision architecturally because you're not going to be creating this debt, whether it's organizational debt or product debt or tech debt further down the line that have broader implications. And so I just, I share that because there's this, as the COO, it was a lot of learning and listening and coaching and developing. As a CEO, there's this need to hold the future and the present in your head at the same time. And know that decisions you're making today are really for the long-term efficacy of the company. And those decisions may not always be understood by the organization, but you have to be okay with that. So you mentioned when talking about City that you picked up a lot about patience during your time there. And you've mentioned a number of long-term, very important goals that you have for Authentics. Uh, I'm curious which of these goals uh, you've had to exercise the most patience on during your two and a half years here. It's an interesting question. When I joined the company, it was really clear to me what we need to do product-wise and what we need to do structurally within the organization in order to meet our objectives. And it's taken two years to get there, and we're even not fully there yet. And why patience matters is that if any leader comes into a situation, and we see this quite often, which I think is really unfortunate. I had read a stat at one point that like 
65, 70% of C-level executives that come into an organization actually churn out and don't stay for the long haul. And part of it is because you come in, you feel like you got something to prove, you're getting paid a lot of money, and you got to make changes to demonstrate your worth. And if you can find the conviction and the belief of recognizing that it's going to take time and the outcome will be better, it allows you to have that patience. So on the product side with, with Authentics, like there was a number of organizational changes that I wanted to make. There's also a number of product changes that I wanted to make. And if I would have done that day one, I would have ended up in maybe a better place, but I would have been all alone. Like there would have been nobody around me to see those things through. And I I say that very openly because I think these are things you don't talk about when you get to be very senior in your careers. People look at you as having the answers. And the reality is, is you're so much further away from the day-to-day that that's when it becomes even more and more important for you to listen and to learn and to have the patience for others to show you the way so that you can make those right decisions. If that makes a little bit of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. I uh, put you on the spot with that question a little bit, so I appreciate no, it. No, no problem. No problem yeah. at all. So zooming out a little bit, uh, I watched your 2017 TED Talk on secure and seamless transactions. It's an amazing TED Talk for anyone who hasn't seen it. I'm curious how you feel we've grown as a society since that TED Talk that you gave and where you think we still need to grow. And then a Mm -hmm. tangential and specific question is, how do you feel about government identity programs, for example, India's author project? Yeah, so the the TED Talk, it's hard to believe that it was almost, I think it was almost seven years ago. I think it got republished in 2017, but it's hard to believe because it was a platform to talking about this convergence of identity and payments and the role that technology needed to play and anticipating potential fraudulent transactions. And you know, I was very fortunate to be given that platform to speak about something that is really real today and wasn't, I think, felt as eminently as it was seven years ago. But how far we have come, you know, specifically, I do think there's more awareness. Um, the awareness has increased around the issue with cyber security and that it's much more prevalent than people realize and that it's not just about target getting breached and it's not just about ransomware that happens or a phishing attack or a spear attack. Like it's really about how information gets assembled so that they know who you are and can use that in unexpected ways. And I'll share a little bit because I think that's where we've got a lot, a lot more room to go. But awareness has really increased. As I mentioned earlier, the technology is there. Um, The technology, I don't believe, was there to the level of sophistication and speed. And, you know, with machine learning and these kind of new convolutional neural nets that have been, you know, getting broader and broader adoption, you know, we are actually in a position where we can fight fraud and where we can verify people and we can do that in non-friction ways. And so I think we've come huge, we've taken huge steps forward where I think there's a lot more room is on a couple fronts. One is I do not think we have fully embraced the importance of bringing the private and the public sectors together to solve this imminent problem. So if you look at case in point, unemployment loans that were given over the last year with the pandemic, I read someplace like there was $200 billion that actually either got misdirected or misused. And Can you solve that? Absolutely. Particularly with bringing together, you know, the private sector and the technology that exists and the mind share that exists on solving these problems and things that we do at PayPal and Airbnb and Uber and all of these great companies and applying that to the public sector. And imagine if we were able to do that 
And those losses weren't 200 billion. Maybe it was 20 million and people could have been back on their feet more quickly or people who had misused the money wouldn't have actually had created some sort of criminal offense. So, you know, for me, I think there's a huge opportunity there and bringing the public and private sector together. The other area that I just think is going to continue to be something that we're all chasing is the fraudsters have gotten more and more intelligent. One of the fastest growing type of fraud is synthetic identity fraud. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but maybe for the listeners and audience, it's when you take somebody's real information, parts of the real information and fake information, and you combine it together and you fabricate a new identity. Now, why does this matter? So every time you put something on your Instagram or every time you, you know, log into an account, maybe to buy something online, you do share a little bit about who you are. And there's a uh, hacker out there that was trying to recreate identities. And they said like 70% of what you need to actually steal someone's identity you can, be, can be found on Instagram. And so imagine they take a little bit of your information, a little bit of my information, they combine it together and you have this, you know, fictitious person. And why is it problematic is that not only is this the fastest type of identity fraud that's growing and it's incredibly sophisticated by new fraudsters, but 90 to 95% of the time, these IDs, when validated or verified, actually get through systems. So you, it's, machines can't detect them sometimes. Humans cannot detect them. And it has longstanding implications. So a couple of examples of this. One of the types of identities that are getting stolen are child's identities. Now, one would say, why does it matter? Well, it matters because these social security numbers that are used to establish credit actually goes undetected until this person becomes of age. So imagine like I've got two boys, I have a 15 year old, his identity gets stolen. And it's not until he turns 18 or goes for a home loan or a car loan that we realize that something's wrong with that. Now it's affected his credit. It's cost him and us money in order to recapture what his identity should be and to clean things up. Time and money, frustration. You can have a criminal record, emotional distress. Like there's all of these things that become pretty problematic. And so while I do believe we've come a long way, only some of the best brands understand how to combat fraud and particularly identity fraud. And so I think it's, a, it's incumbent upon us in order to bring that technology, to bring that knowledge to all corners of the world and to individuals and to recognize that the more and more that we are connected, whether we're working, we're playing, we're living, you know, it's an opportunity for us to be exposed. And so is just to go back to the early part of the podcast you know, what are the things we need to do? We need to all take responsibility to ensure that we think about identity literacy. We think about a way that those choices are conscious ones and not unconscious ones. Continuing to zoom out a bit, you're frequently listed as one of the most influential women in fintech. Uh, what does that mean to you? <laughs> Look, it's, it's a real honor. I think any of these industry awards are an incredible honor for anybody. But for me, what's and more important is that what I do day to day positively influences not just the industry, but people like you, people you know in my company, um, my mentees, um, my peer group, and and frankly, regardless of gender, like, I am very honored to be put into that category and have had that happen a couple of times, and I try to represent that class of individuals well. At the same time, my whole career has been in financial services and technology, which 
I don't want to say it's gender agnostic, but it's been, you know, heavily, heavily male dominated over the years. And so for me, I do think the world where it is inclusive and diversity is at the forefront, statistically create better businesses. So again, while I'm honored, you know, my desire to influence doesn't just stop at the gender in which I represent. And I also noticed you're on a number of different boards, including All In Together, uh, Waves for Water, Neology, and Everest Effect. What do all these boards mean to you? How do you even find time to be involved in so many different initiatives? It's a timely question because little personal tidbits. So about once a month, I take about a day and a half and I call it my reflect and reboot period. And with so much going on, it's really important. I think you have to do it more frequently than it used to be once a year. It used to be every six months. For me, it's like once a month where you take a step back and and you ask yourself, are you spending your time as wisely as you possibly could? And in a recent one, I realized that I am doing too many things. And while my my happy place, like my my place of authenticity and of excitement is when I have a lot of different things going on. And part of that is because you can sit there and think about the future of mobility and understand the role that payments needs to play as people move around the world. And then you can sit there and think about you know, the future of identity and think about how do we create a more equitable ecosystem where people who need get help. And so by exploring a lot of these problem statements, you actually can solve other aspects of it because you can look at the patterns and the trends um, that are happening in them. So, you know, for me, it it helps me be a better leader, frankly, but I will say that, you know, there's a time and a place where you can do too much. And I've actually started to dial back a number of those things just so that I can do what I choose to do really, really well. But I do think it's important as They say that life is too short, but I've heard a quote that, you know, life is plenty long enough. It's what you choose to do with your time that matters. And so any of the things that I choose to get involved in, it's really because I believe in it and because I do believe it's disruptive and I want it to be part of my legacy. So I think you'll probably agree to this, like we can all find time for things we love. All right. And I want to enter the final part of our session today, which is the rapid fire round. Uh, We aim to get answers here in about 10 seconds or less. Okay. All right, let's do it. Uh, what is your favorite book? Favorite book. Uh, Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It May Drive Us Apart by Rachel Botsman. You have to read it if you haven't. It's fascinating. What interview question do you always like to ask? What is your favorite product and why? So what is your favorite product and why? The Tesla car. And why? For a couple of reasons. One, the technology is fascinating. And I do believe that there'll be a world where we don't have to drive. And two, because it's been really helpful in my marriage, because we no longer fight about where we need to go and what direction we need to take. Um, but yeah, so Tesla. I uh, I was proud of myself for turning that one back around. I was pretty <laughs> impressed with you. I was pretty impressed with you. Who do you admire? Uh, my father. Uh, what is one item on your bucket list? Skydiving with my sons. I will share with you more than 10 seconds that my um, my real bucket list was going scuba diving uh, with the sharks without a cage. And I did that for my 20th anniversary with my husband. So it's one of those like, I checked it off, but yeah, I'd love to go skydiving with my sons. Quite a thrill seeker. Yeah, I, I am. What was your first job? Uh, in high school or after college? High school. Uh, selling men's clothing at a department store. And last question, and you can take a little bit longer on this one. Uh, What does success look like for you? 
This one's actually a really easy one for me. It's about making an impact. Yeah, I mean, people define impact differently. For me, it's about making an impact on others around me and on society, and whether it's a financial impact or social impact, just an impact on people's lives. It's, it's, it's really important for me. It's what gets me up every morning. I think that came across loud and clear uh, in today's show. So I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Carrie, thank you so much for joining today's show. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.